Just a reminder, everyone, the topics covered in this podcast are general in nature. They haven't taken into account your personal circumstances, and it's important to seek personal financial advice if you want to address any of the subject matter. Welcome to the Money Man episode of the 29th of February 2024. I'm Money Man Steve. I'm here with Money Man Luke and Money Man Nick. Hi, guys. How hey, are Steve. You, Steve. How are you going? Good what time. does the 29th of February tell us? Um, it's a leap year. It's a leap year. Yep. Just thought I'd bring that to everyone's attention. Uh, I noticed that this morning. I thought, why is it the 29th? It's a leap year. That's why. Um, anyway, enough of that. Who, um, who here knows what the markets have done over the past couple of weeks we since our last Money Men episode. We do. They're, they're, all, they're all up generally, Steve. All up the last couple of weeks. So um, ASX up a little bit. Yeah, a bit I over think, half a percent. Uh, about half a percent, mm-hmm. 0.6. Um, S&P 500 and Dow Jones in the US both up about 1%. Mm-hmm. Um, what's about property, residential property? Short answer to that is we don't ever really know what's no. happened over the last fortnight, do we, um, with residential property. Um, and the residential property market isn't just a market either, is it? It's all uh, across, across Australia. That's exactly right. Um, still seems to be holding on, though, you know, with, um, you know, with interest rates probably seeming to be on hold for a little while yet, at least. Yeah. Um, it just seems to me that there's still, you know, that bit of an edge and an interest in the market at the moment. And, and there in, there yeah. definitely is. Like, and I think it's easy for us in this local market. Like, you know, I guess at the end of the day, you know, maybe not long ago, we would have thought, oh, this isn't necessarily a premium market, um, you know, because we're sort of all grown up in it. But it really is becoming a premium market, like the Hunter Valley, Newcastle. Um, mm. So, you know, you talk about markets within markets, but... Mm. Really, there's, there's, it's probably evident that there is a lot of interest in this area, and you know it is obvious that there's more people moving out, selling, and moving from Sydney or moving, you know, from larger areas and, and coming into the Hunter. So it probably makes sense that um, you know it, prices are uh, are buoyant, but supply's low. Like they're, they're my observations, and I think really all the agents we sort of talk to, they say supply is not where they would want it to be. Um, I think even values holding up mm. is a good outcome given mm. the 13 or so interest rate rises over the last yeah. two years. So. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Because they, they could have, and there were pundits saying, um, you know, after the first uh, few rate rises that they were going to have a, a massive, you know, decline in, in prices, and it didn't happen. Um, and there were people sitting on the side saying, mm. oh, I'm waiting for the housing mm. um, correction, and it's mm. like you can't, you can't approach any purchase to wait for the correction almost like you have to you have to be either ready and capable um or you're not like especially with property because of the lag in data mm. um yeah by the time you realize it was a dip it's too late it's not a dip anymore yeah, yeah it's yeah. exactly right yeah so um we'll get uh, andrew our property man on again soon just mm-hmm. to give a new year update um i'm sure he'll have some views about what he thinks um residential property is going to do over the next little while, he'll probably hedge your bets again. I'd say he likes yeah. to take the conservative yeah. line, yeah. which is a good, which is a good mm. one to take. Mm. Yep. Okay, uh, wins of the fortnight. We always uh, talk about a few wins. Um, I'll I'll kick off today if that's mm-hmm. right. Um, Luke and Luke, you and I just had a meeting. 
with uh, some clients, didn't we? Yes. And there's a couple who, um, I guess you would call them substantially wealthy yep. in, their, in their 70s, 80s. Um, very conservative in nature around their spending habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, we were talking generally, you know, about how she can't understand that some of their friends who are on age pension can do a few holidays a year and, you know, they seem to be living so well when when they don't really do all that. Um, and I thought that was, we thought that was interesting, didn't yeah. we? We had a conversation around, hey, you, you can do that and you probably should do that uh, because your money's not going to run out. Yeah. Um, but that's a conservative nature mm. of, of them. But then against that conservative nature and, and the fact that they've worked so hard over the years to build their wealth and have a substantial property portfolio, um, against that was this um, almost a sense that they need to now be investing quite actively and aggressively with the portion of their portfolio that isn't property. So it'd be, you know, the portion of their, their, their portfolio that's more liquid would probably be 10%, mm-hmm. 15% mm-hmm. of their overall portfolio. They're drawing down on that now um, to, you know, to cover their living expenses, to top up their rental income from their properties. Um, but it's, it's just an, I don't know why I'm calling it a win. It's just a discussion, and I thought it was a very healthy and an active discussion. Yeah. So on one side, there's this conservative nature, not wanting to spend a lot of money. Um, he described himself as a tight ass at one stage, and he's not going to go and do lots of holidays. And yep. That was interesting. But then um, their inclination at the moment with their liquid money, so their you know their superannuation nest egg, um, is to invest in. Oh, tech stocks in the US, which right? is, um, almost wholly yeah. is what they're looking to, what we're talking about yeah. doing with the uh, with the money that um, that currently we're managing. So we just had a good discussion about that mm. and and how and we unpacked it. Yeah, we unpacked it and um, talked around um, you know a concentrated portfolio may have looked really good over mm. the last six months. In fact, most portfolios will have looked pretty good over the last six months. Yeah. Um, but if you're looking to draw down on that that, that pool of money, um, then perhaps there should be some consideration to being a little more conservative with it um, and structuring it so that there aren't large drawdowns in periods of poor performance. You know, so when there's a downturn in the market, you got anything to add to that? No, I think it was a, it was a, it was a weird, not a weird. Yeah. It was an interesting conversation because yeah, on one side you had this this conservative spending habit that clearly had served them both extremely well over their lives as, as they've accumulated or amassed a significant amount of wealth, and then you had this very interesting conflicting sort of you know we want to invest as aggressively as we can with our money to grow it. Um, as much as we possibly can in the time that we've got left, and it's sort of like, well, yeah. feel these things are a little bit at odds with each other. But it, yeah. but it was it was just yeah. an interesting conversation. Yeah, it was, and it was a win in so far as you know, we were, we were, you especially were able to you know, just put forward another um, perspective, and perspective yeah. on it, um, which they they took with good grace and um, very nice meeting, very very nice people. Um, what about you? Did you, did you win it all during the um, week, Luke? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think about this last night. Um, probably a few recent client meetings that I've had and, and clients that we're going to engage to do advice with. Um, we've been able to um, 
pick up some significant life insurance premium savings, um, mostly through reductions and waiting period adjustments. But you know, one of the clients that we're looking to present a plan to, there's going to be twenty seven thousand dollars in premium premium savings. Um, you know, another one's fifteen grand of premium savings. Um, you know, all extra money that can be put on the table and invested or added back into their cash flow. So, you know, it was it was a good win. And, you know, it was good to be able to articulate to them or should, we're going to be able to articulate to them um, what they actually needed um, because there is a tendency as time goes on and, insurance, you know, insurance premiums, particularly life insurance products, are relatively sticky. People don't like to um, reduce them. Um, and I think it was important that they had they actually had some perspective around, okay, what do we actually need? Um, if X, Y, Z were to happen or the worst to happen, dead or disabled um what do we actually need and i think it was good to um be i think it's going to be very good to be able to articulate a the value of it and actually show them the the methodology behind some of the cover that they should and should not have um so yeah you know in an age where everyone's in premiums just seem to be skyrocketing whether it's health insurance life insurance house insurance um it was good to be able to get you know savings in the tens of thousands for one of those clients um so that'll be a good, that's a bit of a win. And two on that, and not a knee-jerk reaction and then just saying, hey, it's too expensive, yeah, cancel it all. Yeah, um, yeah. You still, you'll still enable them to have an adequate level of cover, but not, being paying, not, not be paying too much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I had a, a similar win um, in it being an insurance policy. I, I met with a new client who had set up an um, income protection policy about six years ago. Um, and at the time, they disclosed that they um, were a smoker. Um, they very occasionally mm-hmm. um, smoked at parties and yep. things. Um, so they rightly disclosed it at the time. Um, but what they didn't realise was that they could actually update that on their policy. So they recently had a baby and no longer smoking um, and haven't smoked for probably six years mm-hmm. since yeah, they yeah, took yeah. out the policy. <laughs> um, and uh, it was just a matter of filling out a form to declare that they... Updated disclosure. Yeah, yep. um, saved them about $600 per annum mm-hmm. um, on their insurance policy. Yeah, nice. So that's a nice, easy win. So they win there. They're not smoking and um, increasing their risk yeah. of uh, disease, um, but they're also um, so they're saving money with not smoking, um, and they're saving living premiums. Longer. Yeah, yeah, and living yeah. longer as well. So, very good, excellent, good win. So we're going to talk about uh, three topics today if we get time. Through to them. We're going to talk about how long it takes to save for a deposit on a home at the moment. Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about Luke's. Heroes letter, the Warren Buffett's letter <laughs> to shareholders, um, um, which Luke will obviously delve into. He's the expert on all things Warren Buffett. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Though Nick may be too, I'm not sure. Um, and we're going to talk about um, super funds flagging a move into investing in social housing. And uh, so I know, I know absolutely that Luke has some strong views on that, and we'll see um, see where that takes us. Nice one. Okay, so saving for a home in Australia. Um, I guess it depends where the person or people want to buy their first home, and we're talking about first home uh, this year. Um, I guess that in in a place like Sydney, um, I know that in a place like Sydney, it would take it take longer to save for a deposit than it would uh, in regional yeah. New South Wales, for instance. But um, 
on average in Australia, Luke, how, how yeah, long does it take a person or people to save for their home deposit? So I've ripped off a bit of this information from an article that Domain um, put, put out, but mm-hmm. basically they were saying to save 20%, it's taking, you know, the average the average first home buyer, um, you know, for, for call it five years mm-hmm. um, to, yep. to save that amount of money up. Obviously, it was dependent on whether it was Sydney, regional, you know, other yeah, areas. I, um, I think I read that in Sydney, it's about 12 years. Yeah, which, which is just just yeah. out of control, yeah. and yeah. and and so, like, you know, regardless, like that that's a re- yeah. that's a really high amount. So, yeah. I thought I thought it'd be interesting just to cover some of the you know the facts and figures around it, and you know, on the on the surface, you can see that and go, well, five years, I've got no chance, or you know, in your in in the instance where you said, you know, oh, twelve years to save for a house in Sydney, oh, I've got no chance, but you know. I think housing affordability w- was correctly recognised by you know state governments and federal governments on both sides of the aisle to be an important thing to address. And since I've bought a house, you know, back in two thousand eighteen, um, you know, I I did need to save up the full twenty percent. Mm. Um, now housing housing is more expensive, um, but they've brought out you know a number of measures to make it easier for first home buyers to enter the market. And I'm thinking that. You know, the way I read things, whether it's the domain article or information on housing and property, I'm not even sure that a lot of these younger first-home buyers even know that these scheme schemes exist. And mm-hmm. I hate the use of the word schemes, especially when it comes to government, um, you know, assistance. Um, you know, we're going to cover some of these, Steve, but um, did you have anything else you wanted to add just before we, we get mm-hmm. into housing affordability and, and, and being able to maybe shortcut the 20% deposit? Mm-hmm. No, I didn't. Nick? I, I just had one question, just in terms of the 12 years. So w- when we're talking 12 years, that's from um, someone leaving school and going into a full-time job, or um, other people, it's probably from when they finish uni as well. So you're talking age 30 or exactly right. later. And, and I think it's a reasonable, like... You know the, the the statistics are quite staggering, and I think it was reasonable that the government sort of sat back and went, "Hold on a minute, what can we do to allow people to move in?" And and it's you know it's fairly obvious. Like the savings is the issue because a lot of the money would have otherwise been going into rent. But on the flip side, if that rental money could have gone into paying mortgage and building equity in their own property, then you know they were going to be in a similar situation anyway. That, that was certainly before interest rates went up dramatically, but. Look, at the end of the day, there's a couple of little, there's a couple of schemes that are available, um, and one of the newer ones um, that I believe, if it's not in the pipeline to be released, is already sort of out there and available is the um, Labor government's help to buy scheme. Um, so, if anyone recalls back towards the election, um, there was a lot of noise around what the government were going to do to assist first home buyers, and we did cover this, I think, in one of the podcasts um, way back when, whenever, whenever the government were elected. Um, but the help to buy scheme was effectively a shared equity scheme with the government, or is effectively a shared equity scheme with the government, um, but only requiring you, uh, assuming you meet certain income criteria, only requiring you to save. Two percent of the purchase price, or two percent of the deposit. So, for argument's sakes, 
rather than the average, you know, first home buyer needing to find, uh, say, for five years, they probably only need to save for six months in this instance, or maybe, you know, maybe even less. Um, so very quickly, the ability to purchase a property um, becomes a realistic proposition for, for a first home buyer. So I found, found that quite an interesting one. Um, I've got some views on its disadvantages, but did either of you have anything to add into that right at the moment? Yeah, I was, I guess, uh, thinking about the disadvantages that I've sort of seen lately with some of these that theoretically, yes, it's great um, if if you can borrow, if you can save just 5% mm. and borrow the rest. Um, but obviously, um, in, in some cases... Um, there's lenders mortgage insurance mm-hmm. um, when you're borrowing more than 80% of a property um, th- there are government schemes that help you first home buyers avoid that lenders mortgage insurance yep. but also just looking at um, the bank's websites like CBA for example on their calculators they do show that they differentiate between loans that are where a borrower is borrowing more than 80% so yep. can also mean um, a higher rate of interest at those levels so um, I guess those that can um, save and and get up towards that 20% mark for their deposit it's a logical um, move can still still benefit quite a bit yeah it's an interesting one so like the 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 federal government's help to buy scheme basically allows you um, assuming you meet certain income criteria so as a single person you can earn up to $90,000 a year to be eligible for the scheme or for a couple it's $120,000 a year combined taxable um, and there's some asset thresholds as well um, but in there the government can, will basically contribute up to 40% of the purchase price for the new home um, or 30% for uh, an existing home within the relevant price caps and I think the price caps just as a quick glance were you know, nine hundred nine hundred fifty thousand dollars for regional mm-hmm. areas, including Newcastle and Sydney, or, or thereabouts. So that's really good. But on the flip side, there's this very unclear contract. I think I guess it's a contract to say, well, it's clear on when you're required to pay that back, and that's when you sell the property, mm-hmm. or throughout the ownership period of the property. What people I think need to be very conscious of is that you could very quickly, if you go and buy your first home and then, you know, five or 10 years down the track, you're looking to upgrade because the family's growing, very quickly you could find yourself absolutely chained to the government um, in terms of not being able to take that next step because you actually physically do not have the equity in the property. Mm. Um, the government are going to require you to pay that back first and yourself. before okay. you make that next step. So I think there's some... And the, and the other thing that's a little bit unclear is your earnings adjust. So as time goes on and you may um, not be within their 90 grand threshold or their $120,000 um, couple threshold they mandate requirements on, on the loan that they've given you or the equity portion that they've taken on your behalf. So there's some, it's good, but there are some things in there that I think make it a little bit scary. So that's the help to buy scheme from you're the try, federal government. trying to scare people away from it, Luke. I guess, I guess the, um, the other part to it is, um, you know, if you're in $120,000 as a couple and you're yeah, sure you can only you only need a 2% deposit, but you still need to service the loan. And if interest rates are at 6% or more, um, there isn't 
you can't borrow a massive amount um, under bank serviceability rules if you're earning 120 grand combined as a couple. You you're, so you're, you're, not, you're exactly probably right. not going to be able to get into something at the upper end of those thresholds. Mm. It would probably be at the lower end. So, yeah, I, I don't know enough about it and, and how it works exactly, but um, I would think that, yeah, you just need to do your numbers and make sure that if your future plans are that you want to, as you said, if you want to access that equity in your home, yeah, you've got to realise that the government's going to have 40% of it. Mm. Um, you know, so be careful. Yeah. So, so the other, you know, the other one in here is was the Liberal government's um, first home loan uh, deposit scheme. Mm-hmm. So where they were, you know, basically guaranteeing the LMI, um, which I think is L- a LMI means what? Uh, lenders mortgage insurance. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So, so you know, letting people with smaller deposits enter in, and you know, where lenders mortgage insurance was applicable. So basically, lenders mortgage insurance would be applicable if the lenders assessed you that you can borrow that amount, but you don't have the twenty percent. So they're all good green ticks. Um, so so the lender is saying, hey, you are financial to do this in our in our eyes, whether that's right or wrong, <laughs> but they're saying you're financial. Um, and the next step is rather than make you pay this massive lump of lenders mortgage insurance and capitalise it into the loan, um, the government will you know basically co- cover that component for you. So I think that is a good scheme, and I've seen a number of people utilise it. And I think it also gives you, you know, the purchaser a little bit more flexibility and not necessarily being tied to the government. So, you know, there's there's two schemes that are basically operating. And as I said, I don't like the term schemes. There's two schemes sort of operating. There's the low deposit scheme and then there's the help to buy scheme. Mm -hmm. Um, So just for those out there, just to be conscious, you don't actually need the full 20%. I think that's sort of the the, um, point to make. So I think, you know, it's also, you also need to understand if you are... If you're not borrowing 80%, but you're borrowing 95% of the value yeah. of the property, and your payments are going to be higher, exactly. it's going to be harder to get by. So, you know, you know, you just people just need to think before they act on these things. Yeah. But um, then, you know, on top of that, there are, you know, first homeowner grants and, um, you know, um, concessions on stamp duty mm. and those sorts of things. So, you know, not, not only when, when you buy a property, not only is there a 20% deposit that you require without these schemes, there's stamp duty, um, you know, stamp duty on an $800,000 property is 20, 25 grand. Um, you got a fine on top, you know, so, but first homeowners at certain levels can get exemptions or reductions to stamp yeah. duty as well. In certain thresholds, yeah. yeah. Which have increased in recent years as mm. well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I think it's still, you know, still quite achievable for many first homeowners if they're taking advantage of some of these concessions oh, and things that are available. Yeah, um, I think I think they're um they're extremely generous. Um, and and I don't think that either government can be criticised that they haven't attempted to look, it's hard for them to control affordability, I get that. That you know, that, that is a supply and demand issue. But they've done a lot at the front end to try and help people get into property sooner. So they're not further and further behind as the market continues to grow, or likely will continue to grow. Um, you know, as you know, supply doesn't come on at the rates that they yeah, wanted yeah. to. So yeah, I think there's some pretty good efforts from both sides of the aisle. Um, there's some pretty good concessions out there, and you know, first home buyers need to probably not read all the doom and gloom news. Um, that you know they're never going to be able to buy a property. It's going to take me 12 years to build up the deposit. I think that's a bit of codwash, and you know, needs to be taken with a grain of salt. 
I think that it's important, though, to understand and first home, potential first home buyers need to understand that it actually takes discipline, though. That's not just going to happen. Yeah. You know, you, you, if, you get, if you want to buy a home, then you need to have money of some sort to do it, um, whether that's um, a larger or a smaller deposit mm. um, and cash flow um, that you're prepared to forsake um, to A, save for the deposit and then B, pay the mortgage. Um, and if, if people don't have discipline, then that, that dream of home ownership you know, could potentially never happen mm-hmm. uh, because it, it's required. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay, we're going to stop talking about first-home buyers now. We're now going to talk about Luke oh. Stiles' favourite subject <laughs> in the world, um, Warren Buffett's oh, the Oracle, of, the Oracle <laughs> of Omaha. Well, I mean, if you weren't all, you know... Um, if you if you weren't living under a rock over the last week, you'd all know that um, the letter to shareholders for Berkshire Hathaway was released over the weekend. I hate to burst your bubble. <laughs> You're living under but a rock. There would be plenty of people <laughs> who would be offended by that. Yeah. Um, uh, by you telling us that we live under a rock. Well, but anyway, any anywho, so 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 the letter to shareholders, mm. which you know is is a, a very um, sought after. Um, Insight into Warren Buffett, Berkshire Hathaway, and the management of that company was released over the weekend. Um, now, in the in the letter, you know, I like to try and cover it every year in, yeah, in a podcast or, or a quick blog. I actually um, look forward to this time of yeah, year. Yeah, good, good, yeah. good. Um, and it's full of, you know, as I tell everyone, it's full of nuggets of gold. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, this year, Charlie Mungery's business partner um, passed away, sorry, at the end of last year, a couple, couple of days short of his 100th birthday. Um, and Warren, in the letter, was particularly um, focused on, you know, helping everyone understand that really uh, Charlie Munger, who is the less known business partner in the Berkshire Hathaway arrangement or partnership, um, was really the ar- architect of Berkshire. Um and, and Warren describes himself as basically the general contractor of the business. <laughs> so it's quite, quite interesting. Um, and it's rightly so. You know, you only need to go through their letters over the years and sort of see the descriptive words around, you know, how Buffett describes um, Charlie Munger and his sort of, um, his sort of influence on him and, and the way the business operates today. But more importantly, um, Buffett came out with some gold quotes that I'm going to quote. Um, and one of them's around predicting share prices and you know picking markets. And so he says, it's harder than you would think to predict which will be the winners and losers, which is a fair statement. And those who tell you they know the answer are usually either self-delusional or snake oil salesmen. Um, so I think it's a good good reminder for everyone out there um, that, you know, you, you can't, regardless of what's happening, and it was kind of similar to our meeting this morning and some of the conversations we were having with clients that came in, um, it was a little bit around picking the winners. Um, and we were sort of not pushing back, but giving our... Um, our insight um, into, you know, maybe that's not the way to approach things. So it's quite important and quite timely when you see, you know, arguably the most successful investor in the world um, reiterate that um, in his letter. <laughs> so I was armed with that information this morning, Steve, and I, and I knew that. But I think sometimes it's the more you don't, the more you know, the more you know you don't know. Yeah. That, that is it, definitely it, true in this situation. It's, it's so interesting. So, like... I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bang on about Buffett's letter for too long, but some key things that I took out of it um, 
and you know I, th- I think you know he always re- reiterates things like this um, you know he, he highlights that in you know corporate earnings net earnings um, can be misguided um, or, or misrepresented so he prefers to obviously look at operating earnings um, and why does he why does he highlight that because he's saying that new accounting standards that came out in 2018 particularly for large companies like Berkshire Hathaway, Basically, they include market movements in net net earnings, so basically unrealised capital gains or losses. And he said that, you know, rightly so, just completely distorts the profitability of a company. Um, it's not clear what's actually occurring. Um, and he highlighted that with, you know, in the letter basically saying, you know, one year Berkshire, I think, you know, the net income was $36 billion and the next year it's $26 billion. And he said, well, it doesn't make sense because on an operating level, all companies within the business actually made more money. It was purely that the share components of the business or the equity components moved up and down. Um, so he's just highlighting that at a, you know, he, he's giving these nuggets a goal for people who choose to look at investments and look to understand investing and that, you know, on the surface, things are not, often what they seem. So I found that quite interesting. Um, No surprise, you know, he's reflecting on, you know, his extensive investing experience since 1942 when he bought his first share and he highlights the the stability and growth of the potential of the American stock market and, and the continued potential of the American stock market. So he backs continually corporate corporations um, and says that you know good businesses will continue to you know um, make money. So I think that was you know it's a good reminder because as things get um, you know the world and macroeconomic you know um, and geopolitical issues become obvious, it can be um, easy. It can be quite easy to get swept up in some of those changes and think, oh well hold on a minute, you know, am I really confident on what I'm talking about? Am I confident on, you know, businesses moving forward? It's good to see that someone who's been around since 1942, who's seen it all, um, basically says there is no reason why you shouldn't stay the course, why you shouldn't continue to invest and, you know, have those good disciplined approaches, which I think as financial planners, they're all the things that we do on a daily basis. Um, But it's certainly important to sometimes get those those reminders, um, you know, through what did you call uh, Warren to me? My favorite, my favorite person, or something like yeah, that. Something like that. Well, yeah. I, know, I know that he's got to you. Yeah, so. God, clearly. <laughs> um, so yeah, I thought I thought it was um, a timely letter, and 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 it was yeah, it was really interesting to you know, as always, once a year, get a get a good insight into his mind. I'm going to leave us with one more quote, if that's okay, mm-hmm. everyone. Okay. Um, so Warren said. Though the stock market is massively larger than what it was in our early years, today's active participants are neither more emotionally stable nor better taught than when I was in in school. For whatever reason, markets now exhibit far more casino-like behaviour than they ever did when I was young. And now the casino resides in many homes and daily tempts the occupants. (laughs) So... It's just so... You know, have you... You know, it, it couldn't be any truer. Like, in COVID in 2020 was very obvious like whenever someone was talking to me about oh have you seen this stock or buy that stock i was like oh far out you know we've got to not do this don't talk to me about this Um, so just it's just so interesting that arguably the most successful investor in the world has these tried and true methods and approaches um that you know as anyone who's invested sorry interested in investing should just read the letter um 
You'll put a link to the letter. I will yep. put a link to the letter in the show do you, notes. Do you like Warren? Nick? Yeah, mm-hmm. yep. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to remember the, the quote of his that I like. It's yeah, I'll I'll, I'll remember it remember and it. get we'll, back to you. We'll post it. We'll post <laughs> it in the <laughs> we'll post uh, in the show it on. Notes. He's um, got lots of great quotes. He has, yeah. I mean, for me, you know, Warren Buffett sort of just summarises, um, you know, invest in good quality assets for the long term. That's yep. really what it's about, isn't it? Um, don't don't be swayed by the short term any, fluctuations. Any, you know, he highlights in there as well, um, you know, he, he shares his personal strategy of holding the majority of his net worth in equities, mm-hmm. which... Which for a 90, I think he's close enough to 90, he might be mm. 90, which is an interesting and contradictory perspective of what, you know, um, what people might normally expect a 90-year-old to do. So it's just interesting and, and it's quite clear that a good diversified equity portfolio has served him very well. Have you got that quote, Nick? Yeah, this is the quote. So, um, no matter how great the talent or efforts, some things just take time. You can't produce a baby in one month by getting nine women pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. That is a, that's a nugget, that one. That, that, is, that, is, a, that, that is a very good one. Um, anyway, so, yeah, there you go, everyone. Yeah. So it's a, and, and, and Buffett in there basically highlights that, um, you know, he's, the succession plan um, being Greg Abel, who's one of the company executives, runs the Berkshire Hathaway Energy, um, basically, you know, slotting in and being the next CEO. So succession planning certainly on his um, radar at 90 years of age. Awesome. <laughs> well, there's Warren Buffett, and you've managed to um, get that off your chest for another I have, year. mate, yeah. and I'll include the link. <laughs> um, awesome. Thanks for that, Luke. That's um, right. Okay, our last topic for today. We've got eight, seven minutes. All right. Um, and again, this is one you raised, Luke, um, which you're quite passionate about, I think. It's super funds, some of the larger super funds flagging um, a move into investing in social housing in Australia. Yeah, so I think, what was it, four of the major funds, CBUS, Care Super, Host Plus and REST, um, are flagging a move into affordable housing investments. Um, and I think they're talking around the numbers of being, you know, $500 billion of funds available to support um, community housing or affordable future fund via the affordable future fund. Um, and so the objective there is to obviously increase social housing supply and questionably ensure long-term returns for members. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like the idea of there being affordable housing I think that's very important. I think in a developed country, like the 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 people who have not been able, you know, through circumstance or otherwise, have not been able to accumulate the wealth they need to potentially buy a house, the government should be there to step in. Now, where I don't agree with this is that members' money that is meant to be or by design um, for their retirement... Um, and you would think that the super fund would have a mandate to maximise that money, and I guess that's a bit of a loose term, maximise that money for members' retirement. How can you then have these two issues? How can you have affordable housing, which affordable is effectively, don't care what you say, is subsidised, <laughs> and have maximum returns? That it's it's. It's something that makes my blood boil when these super funds. <laughs> you're looking yeah, at me. You're obviously passionate. When, they, when these super funds begin to meddle into this type of rhetoric, you know, 
they take this position that they're 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 solving the social problems of this country. They're solving the social problems of this world, and I, you know, I don't I don't uh, buy it. I don't, I just don't buy it. It is interesting, given that the the sole purpose um, test in terms of um, superannuation as well, um, requiring super funds to basically solely have the purpose of benefiting their members. So mm. it's, it, it is, makes it interesting how that fits in with, with that sort yeah, of purpose. Yeah, so they're, they're looking, at, and they're saying that they're, they're looking to also benefit the Australian housing, um, affordable, yeah, affordable Australian housing, and also starting that uh, they see that it will um, provide jobs for um, uh, Australian workers. And that, is that what a super fund is chartered it's, to do? I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I saw Peter... It wasn't, wasn't Peter Costello, it was Wayne Swan. Because he's head, I think he's head of one of those funds or he's something involved in IMF or something like that. And, you know, he, he, he looked quite emotional about, you know, potentially deploying $500 billion worth of members' money to um, solving the social housing problem. Um I, I just didn't buy it. <laughs> it's it's probably better than advertising at the footy, at least. Yeah. Well, this is, this is a really good point. Um, what happened to that? They won't stop doing that, will they? What happened to that fund that was advertising at the footy? Did it? Didn't it no, get dismantled? There's a few of them. There's still um, large industry super funds mm. advertising yeah. at the footy. So, um, so yeah. the, the the point I found it quite interesting because Nick, Nick's point, you know, the, these super funds are actually legally bound by the requirement of sole purpose tests. So basically, ensure and again, it's that's a fairly loose, um, you know, um, so, requirement. Know, so, but yeah, the trust, trustees have an obligation, I guess, and and you'd be silly to think that the trustees wouldn't have thought about that. Yeah, so there there would be some sort of um, you know projection around you know income returns and, and eventual capital growth potential around what, the portfolio. Yeah, Steve, interesting. Mm-hmm. So what do you and me, and I'm sure Nick, you have the same conversation with your clients when we sit down and we mm-hmm. go, hey, we're going to build this beautiful financial plan for you and it's going to have some beautiful modelling in it. And I often preface it with, and the modelling won't be the same in the next one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight years time. You can't predict the future. <laughs> we can't it, predict, yeah. <laughs> you know. So, yeah. so we use the modelling as a mm. bit of a guide, mm. but we know it's not going to be set in stone. And so, sure, Steve, they probably have, and rightly so, presented some form of modelling to justify the movement of five hundred billion dollars worth of members' money. Um, but again, I still don't buy it. Um, <laughs> Do you know that in 2021, I, did, I was just—it was just part of researching for this show, show notes. So this is talking about super funds and the and the law that governs them. So the CIS Act. Um, in 2021, superannuation funds had an additional um, upgrade, or basically an insertion of um, a best interest duty, and it was for their members effectively, and it was ultimately um, an obligation to act in the financial best interest of the members. So it's going to be interesting to see how a person receiving the benefit of social housing, whether or not they are a member of one of these funds, and I guess that's another interesting thread to pull, um, whether or not they're a member of one of those funds, how does that actually benefit the member of the fund? Uh, you know, And, and my, my issue is it's a competing issue because social housing by its nature, I believe, has to be subsidy. It is a form of subsidy because because if it wasn't, then you would be purchasing, 
you know, with your 20% deposit, with your 5% deposit, you'd be using these other government schemes. So um, by nature, it actually is subsidised. It has to be. So who's subsidising? Is it the super funds? Is it part of that $500 billion? Um, who knows? But uh, so anyway, I won't, I won't get bogged down into it too much, but I was talking to a client of mine, um, oh, sorry, a prospective client, and I might have already raised this before. He was with um, a construction fund. I'm going to mention the name. Um, and he said to me, I really like the fact that I'm with construction fund because I know that they build at the, you know, the projects and that's where they're pouring the money back in. Might have been one of those funds mentioned earlier. Um, and I said, what's happening? He was a construction manager. I said, what's happening with construction costs? Oh, mate, you go blowing blow out of the water. Ridiculous. No one's profitable. <laughs> I said, well, that's good that your money's in there. <laughs> He just, you know, yeah. it, it had to set into that level. So, well, you know, have you got a view on it, Nick, at all? Or? Uh, I guess um, it's important to note that I think we're all for social housing, um, but um, it's more a question of whether super funds should be paying for it. Yeah, um, I, I, yeah. I get my view on it is, you know, as with any investment, um, if you're going to be making an investment into a super fund, you know, one of these funds, and into a an option, um, an investment option that actually does have exposure um, to this type of investing, you need to do your homework. You need to understand and ask the questions of the super fund of how, how they actually see that it's actually going to benefit and provide returns. You know, so they'll have, they'll, they'll, they'll have numbers and they'll have a story around it, but you're going to need to dig deep mm. to, to find it. So do your research and don't invest in anything that you're not comfortable with. Yeah. I, I, yeah. And I, if it's a good investment, why yeah. why isn't the government investing in it? Well, the government's well, using... Now, there's a cynical... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and the government has said it, is that they see um, Australian superannuation as a pot of money uh, to be used for the development of the country. Um, the alternative view to that is that um, the superannuation is my money and, uh, and I want it yeah. for my retirement. I don't, so, I don't need it to be used so, for anything else. So. so, so go a step further, Nick. You know, why is the government not investing it in in it? Why why aren't private enterprise investing in it? Mm. You know, so if, so if it was such a such a clear money maker and such a you know, if the numbers stacked up so much as as Wayne Swanee said it was, then then why aren't private enterprise engaged in this? Mm. And and I think there's more to the story. Um, then they're all willing to let on. That's my personal opinion. Yeah, very good. We're all allowed to have personal opinions. Yeah. That's uh, a free country. Okay, so that's us for today. That's our 40, we're at 41 and a bit minutes. Right. Um, thanks for joining us. Remember everyone to uh, spread the word, grow the movement, the Money Men movement. Um, share with friends, um, announce to the world that uh, they can listen in on a fortnightly basis. <laughs> All right, thanks. See you later. See you next fortnight. Bye.